The Crime Tree is a true crime podcast detailing the crimes and events committed against others. Listener discretion is advised. Throughout this episode, sex work or sex worker are the terms I am using to refer to consensual sexual encounters between two or more adults for some form of payment. The stereotypical image of a sex worker is for the most part formed by popular cultural and media representations, when in fact most of the time this is far from the truth. A sex worker could be your next door neighbour, or the person standing behind you in line at the supermarket. A sex worker could be the student nurse checking your blood pressure who is paying their way through university, or the person beside you at school pickup who is also waiting for their own child to finish for the day. A sex worker could be anyone, and a person's choice to earn a living this way makes them no different to anyone else. Sex work is simply just that, work. In Australia, the laws governing sex work varies by state and territory. For the most part, it is legal to conduct sex work within a registered establishment or parlour, and to work privately as long as the heavily restricted guidelines are followed. Street work is legal only within New South Wales which states it's lawful as long as it is not near or within view of a school, place of worship, a hospital or a residential dwelling. But it is illegal throughout the rest of Australia, where known red light districts are now heavily policed. Despite being predominantly illegal, street work accounts for approximately 5-10% to of all sex work conducted within Australia. And regardless of the law, there are street workers in every state and territory. A person's choice to be street-based varies from one individual to another, but for the most part it is because it offers them the flexibility and choice of their own working hours and times, which they don't have complete control over when working in a registered establishment, and they don't have the overheads of someone choosing to work privately. Regardless of whether a sex worker chooses to conduct business off the street, in a registered establishment or privately, they all have the right to feel and be safe. But unfortunately, this is not the case, and those who choose the street are at a higher risk of being the victim of abuse, assault and violence. Crime and violence committed against any person within the sex industry is generally seen as being less important and not newsworthy. But in Brisbane, Queensland, when two street workers were found brutally murdered, police wasted no time in setting up a task force and were determined to catch their killer before he could strike again. You are listening to The Crime Tree, I'm your host Jasmine, and this is the story of Jasmine Crothern and Julie McColl. In the morning hours of Thursday, August the 8th, 2002, a truck driver attempting to make a U-turn in a vacant lot beside the Hendra police station made a gruesome discovery. The body of a partially clothed woman covered in blood. Police were quickly on the scene and the entire area was cordoned off, including the truck which had stopped mid-turn. The woman was wearing only a three-quarter sleeved black top and a pair of black ankle boots. She was in the fetal position and had what looked to be stab wounds to her stomach and back and her throat had been cut. 
Rigor mortis had set in, indicating that she had likely only been deceased for around four to six hours, and the lack of blood on the ground in the area indicated that this was probably only the dump site and her murder had been committed elsewhere. When the Brisbane Scenes of Crimes unit arrived, they found a set of tyre impressions in the dirt, which led up to near the body before reversing around and driving out. Beside the tyre marks where the driver's door would approximately be had a vehicle stopped there were several clear shoe impressions. These led up to and around the body before stopping back where they started. These impressions were quickly ruled out as belonging to the truck or the driver who had found the body. After taking photographs and measurements of the distance between the tyre impressions to establish the vehicle's axle width for future reference, investigators were then tasked with trying to find out who their victim was. No identification was located with or near the body, but she did have several distinctive tattoos. Given the approximate time of the murder and the location where the body was found, police sent photographs of the woman's tattoos to the nearby Fortitude Valley Police Station. Fortitude Valley is the home to the known red light district of Brisbane, and police were quickly able to identify the victim as 41-year-old Jasmine Crothern. Jasmine's autopsy revealed that she had been stabbed at least 14 times. The wounds were 2.5 centimetres wide and up to 16 centimetres deep, and came from a non-serrated dagger-type weapon with a double-sided blade. Toxicology found no drugs in Jasmine's system which would have caused her to lose consciousness, and due to the lack of defensive wounds, it was quickly determined that this was likely a surprise attack, and her state of undress indicated that her attacker was likely to be a client. Speaking to other women who worked the streets alongside Jasmine, investigators were able to establish that she had been working on Brunswick Street in the heart of the red light district on the night she was murdered. She was described as wearing the black top under a beige jacket with a matching beige skirt, her ankle boots, and was carrying a black handbag. With this information, detectives scoured through hours of CCTV footage from businesses in the area in an attempt to follow Jasmine's last movements. The last recorded sighting of her was at the BP service station at 8.32pm on the 7th of August, approximately 12 hours before her body was found. She appeared to be in good spirits as she made a purchase before continuing on her way. As Jasmine's top and boots were sent to forensics, detectives then attempted to identify the tyres and shoes that had made the impressions left at the scene. At the time, there was no database of tyre treads on file, so they had to hit the pavement going door to door checking with manufacturers in the hopes that someone could identify them. While their initial inquiries were not successful, the general consensus based on the tyre's characteristics was that it had what is referred to as highway tread, which is generally used on light commercial vehicles, particularly utes and vans. Thankfully, the shoes were quickly identified. Detectives sent digital copies of the prints to a police officer who kept an extensive database of sole impressions for comparison. The shoes that left the impressions at the scene were identified as a common work boot, known as a T-boot. Contacting the sales rep of T-boots in Brisbane, they were disappointed to learn that that particular style had had the same sole pattern for the last 30 years, so unless they had a particular boot to compare it to, the print was essentially useless. Speaking with Jasmine's family and friends, police uncovered two potential suspects. The first was her ex-boyfriend who had a violent past and already had a murder conviction to his name. 
The second was a standover man who had been attempting to have control over the women working in Fortitude Valley. Numerous women came forward to tell investigators that he often approached them with offers of drugs as well as violent threats. Police learned that this particular individual had also just been released from prison after serving time for a vicious stabbing attack. After extensive interviews with both of these men, they were ruled out. Both had solid alibis for the night in question and the impressions left at the scene could not be linked to either. When the forensic report came back for Jasmine's clothing, it was found that a semen stain on her top contained the DNA of an unknown male. After no match could be found in the database, Detectives appealed to the media for any male who had used Jasmine's services to come forward, and many did, giving voluntary DNA samples which eliminated them all. With Jasmine's regular clients ruled out, they began to theorise that her attacker might be someone unknown to her, perhaps a client she had never come into contact with before. Then, six months after Jasmine's body was found in that vacant lot, another Fortitude Valley street-based worker was found brutally murdered. At 7.30 on the morning of Wednesday the 26th of February 2003, council workers came across the naked body of a woman at the Deepwater Bend Reserve. Deepwater Bend is a quiet recreation reserve on the south bank of the Pine River and forms part of the Tinchitamba wetlands. It is a popular fishing spot with a boat ramp and various platforms to fish from. It also has picnic shelters, barbecues, a playground and boardwalks along with walking tracks throughout the wetlands and is located approximately 30 kilometres north of Fortitude Valley. 42-year-old Julie Louise McColl was born and raised in New Zealand. She had been adopted at birth and had a happy childhood. But at the age of 15, her adopted father committed suicide and Julie struggled to cope with her loss. Leaving home not long afterwards, Julie left New Zealand to begin her new life in sunny Queensland, Australia. She went on to have four children and chose to be a street-based worker to support herself and her family. She loved doing needlework and painting, adored the beach and her favourite band was the Eagles. She was close friends with Jasmine Crothern and the two were known to be living together at the time of Jasmine's murder. But as the council workers were driving into the reserve that morning, they found Julie's body just off the car park in the barbecue area. She was lying face down, naked, except for one sandal on her left foot. She was bound, gagged and blindfolded with 24 stab wounds to her back, chest and side. The council workers used their own restricted area tape to cordon off the area as they waited for investigators to arrive. It was clear that Julie's body had been dumped there prior to the last heavy rainfall that they had had just hours earlier, possibly washing away potential crucial evidence. The only thing found near her body was a crumpled up personal check that did not belong to her, but it was taken into evidence. At her post-mortem examination, it was revealed that like Jasmine, Julie had been stabbed with a non-serrated double-sided blade her wounds measuring 2.5 centimetres wide and up to 16 centimetres deep. An analysis of the ropes binding Julie indicated that she may have been tied up willingly and whoever tied them was experienced with bondage. The rope was a common multi-plat braid cotton type, but the ends had been clamped with metal rope end clips that helped to prevent fraying. These clips were not sold with or on the rope which made them unique as the clips could be matched to a particular crimping tool should one be found during the investigation. 
the owner of the discarded check next to Julie's body was identified and under police interrogation, the man admitted to being a client of Julie's in the recent days. He told investigators that during his encounter with her, several checks that were in his possession had gone missing. Despite providing police with a detailed account of his movements that evening, he remained on their radar as he had motive after she had stolen from him. At the news of another of their friend's murder, the women of Fortitude Valley began offering their services during the daylight hours, too scared to be out at night. And determined not to have another woman attacked, Task Force Midas was established dedicated solely to the cases of both Jasmine and Julie, and to also look back into two other attacks that had occurred in February of 1998. The body of 30-year-old Elizabeth Rebecca Henry was found in the early morning hours of February 12, 1998 by a jogger in the Samford Nature Reserve, about 30 kilometres northwest of Fortitude Valley. Elizabeth was naked and had been bludgeoned to death. Her body was partially burnt and her back had been branded as if she were livestock. An autopsy revealed that she was also four months pregnant. Elizabeth had last been seen at around 11pm the previous night, working the Fortitude Valley corner of Brunswick and Harcourt streets. It was her first night back after taking a two-month break, and family members have reported that Elizabeth was in fear of her life. Her brother Stephen came forward with claims that Elizabeth had stumbled upon a snuff film ring and had planned to expose it to authorities. Detectives couldn't help but wonder whether the murder of Elizabeth was linked to another brutal attack that had occurred just three days earlier. 29-year-old Karen Ann Redmile was the eldest of three children and the mother to a six-year-old girl. At around 3.30am on February 8, 1998, she was found bloody, beaten and unconscious on the same Fortitude Valley footpath that Elizabeth, Jasmine and Julie would all be last seen on. Prior to her attack, Karen had been seen talking to a man near the intersection of Brunswick and Harcourt before walking off with him away from the intersection and further down Harcourt Street. Only moments later, witnesses claimed to have heard what sounded like a violent altercation and headed in the direction of where it was coming from to render assistance. There they found Karen, left for dead on the footpath, and her attacker had already fled. Karen would spend the next eight and a half years in hospital in a vegetative state, requiring 24-hour round-the-clock care, before passing away on September 3, 2006 in Sydney. Upon her death, her case officially became a murder investigation. Despite these two earlier cases being quite different from the attacks on both Jasmine and Julie, police couldn't rule out the possibility that they were all connected and that a serial killer was targeting the Fortitude Valley workers. And a press conference on Tuesday the 4th of March 2003 alerted the public to this possibility. After seeing the press conference, fellow Valley worker Jacinda Thorne came forward with a possible clue. Jacinda informed detectives that she was working alongside Julie on the night she was murdered and may have met her killer. At about 2.30am, Jacinda was approached by a man driving a twin cab utility vehicle and because it was raining, she had briefly got into his vehicle to talk where he'd asked if she would allow him to tie her up. Jacinda did not offer this service and declined his business. The man left after telling her that he might be back later. Not long after this, Jacinda decided to walk down to where Julie was stationed 
but she was no longer there. Jacinda described the man as being Caucasian with fair skin, approximately 40 to 45 years old, overweight with a beer gut, a moustache and a chubby face, and he was wearing a dark blue polo style t-shirt. She described the vehicle he was driving as a dark coloured, fairly new two-wheel drive twin cab utility. She was certain it was a two-wheel drive and not a four-wheel drive vehicle because when she briefly sat in the passenger side, her outside foot was still able to touch the road, something she knew she was unable to do in the bigger four-wheel drive model. She was also able to tell them that the vehicle had a canopy over the back in a matching colour to the rest of the car and it also had Queensland registration plates. Using this information, members of Task Force Midas spent hours upon hours once again scouring CCTV footage from the valley in the hopes of finding a vehicle that matched this description. Their patience paid off and on the night Julie was murdered, they discovered one similar vehicle that had driven through the area on three separate occasions within the spate of a few hours. But the footage was grainy because it had been raining and investigators were unable to confirm neither the vehicle's make or model, and attempts to read its plate number were unsuccessful. The footage was sent for digital re-enhancement in an attempt to gather more information from it. While waiting for this, and with a still print of the grainy's footage in hand, police went to every car dealership on the north side in the hope of figuring out what type of vehicle it was, and from this it was widely believed to be a Mitsubishi MK Triton, possibly a 1996 to 2001 model. And when the enhanced footage came back, that is exactly what they were looking at. Despite still being unable to make out its registration, it was clear that this Triton utility vehicle had several aftermarket modifications. It was a dark colour, possibly dark grey or dark blue, with distinct pinstriping along the side, which looked to be possibly silver or light grey in colour. It had been fitted with a CB aerial and had fog lights and a small nudge bar on the front. Its rear canopy looked to be in a colour that matched the rest of the vehicle, also a feature that was not standard. At around the same time as this information came in, detectives visited a local tyre importer's warehouse and found a match for the tyre impressions left next to Jasmine Crothern's body. Records showed that it was a Chinese import that had only been available for about two years. Only a few thousand of them were imported and they were not available anywhere else in Australia. So with a list of approximately 2,000 buyers of the cheap Chinese imported tyres and a list of just over 700 registered Mitsubishi Triton owners, investigators got to work checking and cross-referencing each vehicle eventually reducing the list down to 160 vehicles within Greater Brisbane, with only 26 of those registered to the northern area. One of those vehicles was registered to 52-year-old Francis Michael Fay. A look into his background revealed that Francis Fay was a former paramedic who had spent nearly 30 years dedicated to saving people's lives. He had a prior conviction for work cover fraud and had spent a short time in lockup. Besides that, the only other strike against his name was a recent traffic violation ticket in the Fortitude Valley area late at night. Attending his home address in Narangbar, detectives quickly spotted a dark grey Mitsubishi Triton dual cab utility vehicle parked in his driveway. 
The vehicle was facing towards the garage, so they were unable to see the front of it. But from what was visible, this Triton had the pinstriping, matching canopy and CB aerial that they were looking for. This was enough similarities to obtain the necessary warrants to have the vehicle placed under surveillance. During this surveillance, it was established that the vehicle also had been fitted with fog lights and a nudge bar, and along with Francis Fay, frequented the Deepwater Bend Reserve where Julie's body was found. During one of his trips there, an undercover detective casually approached the vehicle after it had been left in the car park, and inside on one of the seats were a pair of well-worn T-boots. And a close look at the vehicle's tyres showed that they were a perfect match for the tread pattern they were looking for from where Jasmine's body was found. All that was needed now was to obtain his DNA. Not wanting to tip off Faye that they were closing in on him, detectives decided to keep him under constant surveillance while they waited for him to discard something that could possibly contain enough of a sample for comparison to the DNA found on Jasmine's top. Using the recent mugshot of Faye that was taken when he was arrested for fraud, police compiled a photo lineup and went back to talk to the valley workers. Jacinda, who had provided investigators with the descriptions, immediately picked out Francis Faye as the man who expressed his interest in bondage on the night of Julie's murder. And another woman, Renee Reeves, identified Faye as the man she had had a close encounter with in early 2002, six months before Jasmine was murdered. Renee claimed that Faye had picked her up from the area she was working on in Brunswick Street. They had agreed on a price for intercourse before Faye drove her to a deserted location north of Brisbane. When they were finished and as Renee was trying to get herself dressed, Frances Faye pulled out a pair of handcuffs, telling her that he was from the taxation department and that she was under arrest. A terrified Renee bolted from the vehicle and ran. But as she was trying to get away, Faye chased her down in an attempt to run her over. Thankfully, Renee managed to get away safely. After several days of 24-hour surveillance, detectives retrieved a cigarette butt that Faye discarded onto the ground, and DNA testing proved it to be a match for the DNA found on Jasmine's clothing. In the early morning hours of Wednesday the 7th of May 2003, Approximately 50 officers descended on the home of Francis Michael Fay, executing search warrants for his house and vehicle and placing him under arrest. During initial interviews, Fay admitted to frequenting the red light district of Fortitude Valley, but not for the assumed reason. Fay claims that he thought his stepdaughter was working the streets there and he regularly staked out the area concerned for her welfare. He went on making further claims of being on friendly terms with some of the women that frequented the area, saying that they often sat in his vehicle for a chat if the weather was bad. He also admitted to regularly fishing at the Deepwater Bend Reserve. Within a matter of minutes, Francis Fay had attempted to explain away the reason he would have been spotted in the valley area and the reason why possible evidence of any of the women could be found in his car and also the reason why he could be linked to the spot where Julie was murdered. However, when shown photos of both Jasmine and Julie, he claimed to have not known either of them. During this interview, officers were conducting a methodical search of the home he shared with his wife. Upon entering the house, two pairs of T-boots were located just inside the door. In the garage, they found a fishing boat and tied around the boat's outboard motor was rope consistent with the rope used to bind Julie, 
complete with crimped rope end clips. A crimping tool was located in the garage also. Next, a bayonet was found which was consistent with the stabbing injuries inflicted on both Jasmine and Julie. All of these items were quickly sent to be forensically tested. After informing Faye of the evidence they had against him and of the things they found during their search, the two investigators suspended the interview and left Faye in the interrogation room by himself. After some time, he called for them to come back, and when they did, he admitted to the murders of both Jasmine Crothern and Julie McColl, and to the attack on Renee Reeves. He told them that on the night of Jasmine's murder, he had picked her up from the Brunswick and Harcourt intersection. They had agreed on the price of $50 for oral sex, and he drove them to the vacant lot beside the Hendra Police Department. He claimed that the next thing he remembered was driving away from the area covered in blood. On the night Julie was murdered, he told them that he had approached another woman who refused his request for bondage, before pulling alongside Julie, who agreed. She suggested that they go back to her place, but he refused, telling her that he wouldn't feel safe doing so. Instead, he drove them to the deserted Deepwater Bend Reserve. He claimed that Julie willingly let him use bondage on her, and the next thing he remembers is being pulled off the side of the road using bottled water to wash blood from his legs. Faye told investigators that he knew he must have stabbed the two women, but didn't have much recollection of doing so. When asked what he used to stab them with, he said it was a knife that he had kept in his vehicle that he had used when he went pigging, telling them that it was a good knife to kill pigs with. After his confession, Francis Faye was once again showing the photos of both Jasmine and Julie, to which he responded, quote, They still don't mean anything to me. I didn't really look at them that much because I didn't really care. End quote. When the forensic results came back from the evidence collected during the search, one of the pairs of T-boots was an exact match in dimension, size and wear marks with the impression left beside Jasmine's body, and a drop of blood found on the left boot was shown through DNA to having belonged to her also. The crimping tool was also proven to be the same tool that had left the markings on the end clips of the rope that was used on Julie. Faye denied any involvement or knowledge in the 1998 murder of Elizabeth Rebecca Henry or the bashing-turned-murder of Karen Ann Redmile, and no evidence was found that could link him to either. Both of these cases remain active and unsolved, and a $250,000 reward is offered on each for information that will help bring those responsible to justice. Despite admitting to the crimes, Frances Faye pleaded not guilty and went to trial in September of 2005. For three weeks, the court heard of the overwhelming evidence they had against him, and Faye chose not to give evidence or call evidence on his own behalf. The jury was out for just six hours before returning a guilty verdict in both cases. On September 28, 2005, Francis Michael Faye was sentenced to two life sentences to be served concurrently. He must serve at least 25 years and will be eligible for parole in the year 2028. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next week when we bring you another story picked fresh straight from the crime tree. All photos pertaining to this case will be up on our Instagram at the crime tree.